This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Anif Baharuddin and this is Gigi Well Played, the show that talks about video games. We will be rounding up some of the biggest news and releases from the month of June with Jonathan Leo from kakuchupurai.com. Let's start with the recap of the news and there's one big news dominating the headlines this month and that is the release of Diablo Immortal. Uh, mostly for some pretty bad reasons. I mean, let's start with the good lah. The game itself actually made US $24 million in its first two weeks. However, I did a bit of research or like by comparison, Diablo 3, which came out in 2012 or 13, 2012, actually made US 200 million in its first 24 hours. So yeah, not really a huge leap when you think about it. I think Diablo 3, because of the way people were waiting for it, people, you know, were clamoring for it. I guess it made a lot more at a time. So, by comparison, yeah, it's a pretty piddling amount. And then when the game came out, I mean, I tried out the game itself. I mean, I can give you a little mini review. It's actually fun for the first maybe 10, 15 hours up until you get to level 60. When you start seeing all the paywalls and the microtransactions, the Elder Rifts, the Shadow Guild, the PvP bits and everything. And if you want to actually power up your character to, to the best character he or she can be, that's when it starts getting very expensive. Before we get to that, the Southeast Asian version of Diablo Immortal is pushed back to 8 July so that Blizzard can fix the download and overall play and experience. And if we're talking about money, there are actually a bunch of streamers like Quinn Rex who are spending an insane amount of money like US 6000 on a game itself through Elder Rifts and microtransactions and cosmetics and not being able to get 5-star gems they want from the randomness from the after they complete the dungeon and whatnot. So, which means they're actually keeping the randomness of gachaing pretty real uh, in Diablo Immortal. And to be honest, people like Quinrex are not really doing the game a huge favor. In fact, I mean, the, the money is already transferred. I mean, that's the, basically Blizzard has won for one. And then doing this sort of thing where you're spending ludicrous amounts of money will actually trigger addictive behavior in your viewers. And in that turn, they may, it might make them want to actually spend money on their end irresponsibly. So it's pretty irresponsible how the streamers are actually doing this. There's actually a number of them who are basically spending money, showcasing that, yes, you're not getting anything out of this after I spend like 10k or 100k or whatnot. But it's having the opposite effect when you think about it. And, and it's also been reported that players and analysts have calculated that an average player may need to spend up to US 110,000 just to roll the five-star gems they want for each of the equipment slots to make the best build slash best character they can create. Like, you know, the level 60, as much Paragons levels as possible with like the best equipment possible with the Elder Rifts they have on play and the gems and whatnot. So, yeah. I mean, as you and I know, 110,000 US is quite a lot of money actually for... Just one game, dude. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you have... Do you have any thoughts about that? Because I think on my end, I can tell you that, yes, this is... Yeah, the game is free and you have a choice to actually pay money for it. But that's the thing. That the flip side is these companies... I mean, I've worked in a gacha company before. We create these kind of games to make sure that we incentivize people to actually pay more. 
Now, granted, Diablo Immortal has no advertising, no crazy advertising compared to other games like maybe something from Gumi or DNA. But at the same time, it's 110,000 just for something you can do for free in Diablo 3 is to max out your character. is nothing to scoff at, honestly. Correct, yeah. I think the thing about this game is that obviously when it was first announced, um, there was this big brouhaha regarding, you know, how you know fans were not happy at that time, right? And I think a lot of people can see this coming, you know, from a mile away. Um, it's just that um, I have a colleague who's like into Diablo and he was pretty optimistic, quote-unquote, uh, regarding the game itself. And I think the curiosity has a lot more to do with the fact that I think he's just looking forward to, I guess, playing... Diablo on um, on mobile phones, right? An action RPG, la, basically, yeah. Yeah, and I think I think it's also about, I guess, um, having that Diablo experience on a mobile phone. Uh, but the thing is, I think um, one way or another, whether you like it or not, you can't run away from, you know, these kind of, I guess, very predatory microtransaction practices that I think is eventually pretty exploitative if you think about it, right? The fact that it's, it's essentially pay to win, but pay to win in a very radical way, I suppose. It's not like the, it's not like a direct pay to win situation. I mean, if you have a lot of free time, like maybe 10 years, you will <laughs> get the max out equipment you can get for from the game. But mm. if, yeah, I mean, the reason why it's 110k is because you're actually buffing up these Elder Rifts so that they can drop, have a high chance of dropping like a four or a five star uh, gem or whatnot to power up the equipment you have to help with your build. And because this is all randomized, Blizzard is actually charging you more from just randomizing, from the randomization of this. Now, you compare this to, oh, say, Diablo 3, which only costs US 40. And if you discount it, I think it's 29.49. That's like what? US 30, I guess. And you can actually max out a character, guess what, for free. You don't have to spend 100k for that, honestly. And if you want like a proper way to do free-to-play, I mean, probably the most honest free-to-play action RPG I know so far is Path of Exile, which has been around for 10 years and is doing really, really strong right now as you speak. Like, if you want your Diablo fix and you, without all this uh, pay-gating and all this nonsense of Elder Rifts and all that, play Path of Exile. And... The only things you're paying for Path of Exile is like how shiny your explosions are when you fire a spell or what wings you get to use or what color armor you can have for your for your current armor. I mean, it's all everything is all cosmetic on Path of Exile side. Mm, yeah, and I think that's that's by right should be the way to go if you really want to, I guess, charge people money, right? Especially for this free-to-play game, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I think developers know they can make more money out of uh, cosmetics, basically. And mm. you basically keep the game alive as long as you have new content and new dungeons for players to explore. So Path of Exile is definitely doing something right. In fact, I think if Diablo actually fo- if Diablo Immortal followed that kind of train of thought, I think they can actually make a bit more money and get some goodwill out of their fellow gamers and whatnot. So they probably won't review bomb, you know, the game basically. Or, you know, maybe review bomb Diablo 4 when it's out for real next year. Yeah. Um, but what about the experience of the game itself, you know, on the mobile platform? You know, uh, does it live up to the you know, the original Diablo games on it's the mobile? It's fine. I, I mean, if you're playing it on the go, it's fine. I mean, if you are always on the go, I mean, the one issue about playing Diablo 3 is you cannot play it on a laptop in the toilet. In Diablo <laughs> Immortal, I guess you can with just one hand. So 
in terms of like controls and all that, it's actually pretty good. I mean, I've actually, I'm actually not a fan of virtual controls on mobile games, but for Diablo Immortal, it made me a believer a lot. And so basically, the gameplay is fine. It's great. It's it's good. It's good. It's adequately good. Like, I'm not saying it's gonna wow you and all that because I know they're using assets from Diablo Three, but at the same time, yeah, they did a lot. That's like okay, sure, I'm I can spend more than eight hours on this. So that's that's enough for me. And I'm actually willing to pay money for the costumes. Or maybe even the battle pass if I actually am dedicated enough to play this every single day. But the whole Elder Risk thing and all the other stuff about maxing out your equipment and all that by going through these things and gachaing these um, five-star gems and these legendary gems, it's insane. It's... um. It's just as bad as Genshin Impact, or maybe even worse, because I think Genshin Impact's rates aren't as ludicrous. And plus, the four-star characters you get from Genshin Impact are are arguably better when you think about it. Mm. You know, um, the publicity, the bad publicity is still ongoing. Do you think that Activision Blizzard will actually do something about it? They've been pretty quiet on the front, but I think it's because they're just lining up for the July release for the Southeast Asian version of the game. But... Generally, they will need to say something after that launch about the state of the game and the roadmap. Or, I mean, more than usual. Because I guess at the same time, keeping silent while everyone's all getting angry about it means they're just waiting until every, everybody's rage has quelled down. So from a PR perspective and from, and from what history has shown us throughout the days, companies can get away with a lot of things by just keeping quiet. So <laughs> that's really sad. So the only way this can affect Diablo Immortal and the developers and the shareholders of Activision Blizzard is don't do the, what the streamers are doing. Don't spend money on a game. Simple as that. It has happened before. Like To not pay attention to a game and to not give it money means you're setting up for failure. The fact that streamers are spending 6k US and higher just to prove a point and quote-unquote sticking it to the man is not actually helping matters. Mm. And speaking of, uh, I guess, um, money, the fact that it made $24 million US million despite all the bad publicity, is that is that something concerning? Like, who is actually paying for all these things apart from the streamers? Uh, basically, anyone who is influenced by streamers. Sometimes you got the whales who actually uh, have nothing else they want to play and they're fans of Diablo and they probably want to just have another gacha game because I don't know why they rather not want to spend 60 US on the game when they want to spend more than that on a free-to-play game. So it's, it's a mentality thing. Like, I think it's because of the shiny colors and the ease of play. So whatever whales that Diablo Immortal got, they're sticking to them and enticing that market. It sure as heck isn't enticing me, for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I should also mention that if you want an alternative to, you know, to find out what it's like to actually gacha for these things. There's actually a US $25 Rift Simulator you can try out. It's a free app you can find online. I'll give you the link. You can put it on the podcast page later. It's a, it's a GitHub uh, IO thing. So basically, when you keep clicking $25, you get to basically roll whether you get a five-star gem or not. And then you can press another button that lets you do it automatically until you score a five-star legendary gem. So on my side, I quote-unquote spend about 10k US to get one five-star legendary gem. So I'm I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones, though, in other words. <laughs> but that's, that's still an amount, though. It is an amount. Yes, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. So um, I guess, yeah, we'll see how they're going to react to the bad publicity. Um... Well, actually, I want to add into that. 
Blizzard itself, they're actually using Overwatch 2 and Diablo 4. You know, the announcements we talked about in the last show we did yeah. about E3 2022 as a shield to this and everything that has happened with Activision Blizzard since 2019 with the whole Taiwanese protesting that happened a while back about the Hong Kong thing. Um, but generally, yes, they're using these two games, which a lot of people are looking forward to, to basically whitewash whatever bad publicity they have. So I guess that's your answer. I yeah, should have actually mentioned this earlier. My bad. So <laughs> no worries, no worries. All right, okay. So let's wait and see. Um, moving on. Yeah. So after thirty years of speculation and theories, Yuji Naka of Sonic Team has finally confirmed on the Twitter message that. The legendary King of Pop, Michael Jackson, has indeed worked on the music of Sonic the Hedgehog 3 back in 1994. Yes, yeah, so this thing has been an urban myth whether Michael Jackson worked on the soundtrack or not with like some, with a YouTuber, with a bunch of YouTube videos basically analyzing music from the game and music that he has done like Jam, Strangers in Moscow and whatnot, making a comparison. I think a video came out in 2006 or seven. But it's now finally confirmed, thanks to Yuji Naka, who basically complained about the music in some of Sonic 3 stages in Sonic Origins, the collection, being replaced with the prototype music, like remix prototype music for the game. So to quote Yuji Naka, Oh my god, the music for Sonic 3 has changed, even though Sega official uses Michael Jackson's music. After putting up that tweet, he also shared a picture he took while on a helicopter tour of Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch on Twitter. And if you're curious as to which tracks the King of Pop worked on, he composed the Carnival Night Zone tracks. The Ice Cap Zone tracks. And Launch Base Zone tracks in Sonic 3. Because those three stages with the music in there has been replaced with the, with the, I guess, a new version based on the prototype music for Sonic Origins, which we'll talk about later. Mm, wow, this is this is big, right? If you think about it. like I mean, and it's something that, yeah, it's finally confirmed after years of speculation, I suppose. Yeah, 30 years. Even I thought it was like, I thought this news was true. In fact, I thought it was confirmed, but it still wasn't. It's basically speculation up the air. So leave it to 2022 and Twitter and a very embittered Yuji Naka who is probably sore from Balan Wonderworld to, you know, say stuff like this and be like everybody's favorite Twitter person. And although to be fair, when I played Sonic Origins, which we'll talk about later, um, he the music they replaced is actually okay. It's not the worst thing I've heard, but I've definitely heard better. Lah. I still prefer the originals, but the new music isn't too bad. Mm. But I wonder whether this is actually meant to be like a secret, you know, whether there's, there's an NDA that they, they signed, you know, to not reveal these things. Well, the thing about this is Michael Jackson is a huge Sega fan because he has actually appeared in a couple of games. I think it was the first two Sta Space Channel 5 titles on the Dreamcast. And yeah, he's always been in the face, you know, playing Sega Mega Drive and taking pictures with Sonic, you know, the mascot and all that, and the guy in an outfit and whatnot. They even brought, like, Mega Drive games to his uh, Neverland Ranch for the kids. But 
generally, yeah, I mean, this collaboration was basically like a dream come true for both Sega and Michael Jackson. And of course, he didn't want his name in the credits. And of course, because of the whole 90s scandal about um, alleged domestic abuse, child abuse and whatnot, I think Sega didn't want his name as well in on, on Sonic the Hedgehog 3. So that's why it was kept very, very hush-hush. I think, I mean, you know about the new, I mean, I'm sure you've heard about the 90s stuff that happened, Yes, right? yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah um, but I mean, and, and following up on that, do you think that, you know, there's a danger of Sega being cancelled now that this has been made public? Not really. I mean, um, everyone has suspected, basically. I mean, it's like, I guess, finding out that, you know, that that person who worked on this project has been working there. It's just that it hasn't been officially confirmed. I mean, you could tell that some of the tunes in Sonic the Hedgehog 3, like those levels I mentioned, did sound a little bit like the songs that Michael Jackson does and compose and create for, um, I guess, history and... Uh, the album, the, his, his later albums after Bad, basically, like the music in the 90s, like Jam, Strangers in Moscow, and whatnot. Now, moving on, Mobile Legends Southeast Asia Cup Tournament for 2022, which we'll call it MSC 2022, is over and done with. It happened on the last weekend, I believe. And yeah, the top three teams are Resurgence Philippines at number one, RRQ Horshi at number two, and Omega Esports at number three. Now, for Malaysia's teams, Orange Esports and Toda, they are placed at 5th and 6th place respectively, beating out Singapore teams, EVO Singapore and Resurgence Singapore, who are at 7th and 8th place respectively. The MVP of the tournament is Iman Sanku, or Iman, who plays for Resurgence Philippines. And yeah, I mean, this is pretty much... I mean, it's actually one of the biggest esports tournaments so far of the year next to probably the international, which is happening in Singapore in a couple of months later. So yeah, people love Mobile Legends here. So it's great that we get to see Moontan actually do an offline event to get people flying down from Indonesia, Philippines, and Thailand, and Vietnam to just come down just for this event. Mm. You mentioned uh, both Malaysian teams finishing at fifth and sixth, right? Um, what what what's our usual, I guess, performance like in these tournaments usually? It would usually be either top three or top four, but because I think Resurgence and RQ are very very strong teams, and they had the unfortunate, I guess, unfortunate time to actually face these teams are uh, Orange and Toda. So I guess that's why. I mean, but but anyway, it's anybody's game. Like who will be the top five? So Orange Esports and Toda, they're not teams to scoff at. Basically, they're they're pretty top tier. And last but not least, Heroes of New Earth has basically terminated its online service on the 20th of June after 13 years of service. So Heroes of New Earth is a MOBA title which basically was competing with League of Legends back in 2009. So yes. And subsequently, a few years later, it also competed with Dota 2. Now, as you know, League of Legends and Dota 2 are still around. But it's actually pretty impressive given that there's actually a third player in the ring who basically went toe-to-toe with League of Legends and Dota slash Dota 2 and actually stood really strong. I think about halfway through 2016 or 15 or so when Heroes of New Earth, I think, was facing through a bit of a stalemate. But during the first five, six years of its service, it was doing just great being that niche MOBA that was very... Actually, even hardcore for League of Legends and Dota standards. It's pretty... It's for people who are actually up there in terms of like, if they want like a tougher mobile experience that will reward those who actually put in a lot of effort. So it's impressive to see the game last this long with its dedicated audience and constant updates. 
yeah, I mean, you have you have all the other mobile games, obviously Dota and League of Legends to an extent. But how 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 was like Heroes of New Earth? Like, I mean, like, does it have its own niche fans or like is it actually quite popular? It is. I won't say super popular because League of Legends is meant to be the mobile for beginners type kind of game where you can actually enter it easily with characters to accommodate easier basic playstyles. But for Heroes of New Earth, it's pretty hardcore, even for Dota 2 standards. It's got a lot of like... I won't go into specifics because I've only played Heroes of New Earth when it launched and I totally forgot how it has changed over the years. But definitely, it's a bit more restrictive and how do I put this? It's just tougher to play overall. So for people who actually want a high-level MOBA, people will jump into Heroes of New Earth. But of course, you know, popular games will actually live on, especially with the way they handle the marketing. And because Riot Games and Valve, they get a lot of money from whatever they're selling, whether it's skins or battle passes or whatnot for League of Legends and Dota 2, respectively. Uh, Heroes of New Earth, I don't think had a bet. I don't think they they're just happy with what they have last. So I guess that's why they 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 cut out the service after 13 years. And plus, most games wish they could be around for 5 years, let alone 13. That was Jonathan Leo from Kakuchupuri.com looking back at some of the biggest gaming news in the month of June. We're going to make way for some messages. After this, some of the games that were released this month, including Capcom Fighting Collection and Sonic Origins. Stay tuned. This is GG Well Played on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to GG Well Played. I'm your host, Hanif Baharudin. I'm joined by Jonathan Leo, Content Director at Kakuchopuri.com as we run up some of the biggest news and releases from the month of June. We've spoken about some of the biggest news from this month, including the bad press surrounding the release of Diablo Immortal. Let's move on to games that were released this month. Uh, actually, quite a number of compilation games came out. like Basically, like one, one bundle, one CD... 10 games, basically. So we have Capcom Fighting Collection, which is out right now. It's a collection of all 10 games from Capcom's past arcade fighting game days in the 90s. There are quite a number of the fighting games here that a lot of people have missed out from, I guess, the mid 2000s onward. So in the collection, we have Super Puzzle Fighter 2 Turbo, which is a puzzle versus game. Think Columns or Tetris, but, you know, versus mode. And you got Super Gem Fighter Mini Mix, which is... Basically, it's Street Fighter but with chibi characters like big hits, simplified controls, and cute attacks. And instead of just Street Fighter characters, you got Capcom characters like Morrigan and Felicia and Sienko from Darkstalkers. There's also another game called Cyberbots, which is Mecha Street Fighter. Red Earth, which is an action RPG fighting game. And this is the first few games in the late 90s to use the Capcom's high-tech-at-the-time CPS3 arcade board and had a password system so you can continue on with your character while you level him or her up. And of course, there's a slew of Dark Soccer games. Five of them, in fact. Dark Soccer 1, Vampire Hunter, Vampire Savior, Vampire Savior 2, and Vampire Hunter 2. Basically, Vampire Hunter 2 and Vampire Savior 2 are the exact same game, except changed uh, with a modified roster. And a few balance changes here and there, but it's basically your, it's like two of the same game. So... If there's any fault with the Capcom fighting game collection, fighting collection is because it's basically just a variety. I mean, I love Darkstalkers as much as the next guy, particularly Vampire Savior. 
But there are extra versions of Vampire Hunter and Vampire Savior that don't really add much variety. Like, you could replace these games with other fighting games from Capcom stable, especially. Like, maybe the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure fighting game that came out back in the day. I mean, that's just an example. I mean, sure, that's a license to deal with, but that's worth putting in rather than just another version of Vampire Savior. That's it. But still, with the games on tap and the online netplay being very stable at this point of writing, this uh, Capcom fighting collection is definitely a piece of history you need to own if you're into fighting games. Because I know a lot of people haven't played these games, the older games. Oh, and I should also add that's also uh, Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo inside as well, the Hyper Fighting Edition. The one that I think it came out, the one that came out on the Dreamcast. So the match play version, basically. And I think it's a version you get to pick, like, the different, like, you got Chun-Li, you've got her Street Fighter 2 version, you've got her Super Turbo version, you've got her Super version, and so forth and so forth. Yeah, what what about Street Fighter Alpha 3 or, like, in the modern, yeah, the more modern? Oh, they're not in this collection. This fighting collection is just focused on the other, some of the other stuff, like Darkstalkers and Red Earth and Cyberbots. Although, it'll be nice if they could put in Alpha, but I think that was another collection. Um, Street Fighter 25th Anniversary Collection that, that had Street Fighter Alpha inside as well. So I think that's why they didn't release that. Mm. And I heard that the um, upgrades that were made were also pretty, I guess, competent, right? I mean, in terms of like, having, like, you can choose the retro mode in terms of the, the how, how the game looks and, you know, even, even you can choose how the, I guess, um, the sidebar will be handled because I, I guess all these games were in 4-3 ratio, right? Yeah, they're 4-3 ratio. You can actually change like, how they look, basically, and even change the borders. And you can even play either the Japanese version of the game or the US version, which has some differences here and there. Although I do wish they could replace the extra Dark Soccer games with maybe Capcom vs. SNK, Capcom vs. SNK 2, and like I said, the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure fighting game. But, you know, licensing issues and whatnot. That, that <laughs> always happens. But yeah. I also hope that a release like this will prompt other companies like NetherRealms and SNK to publish their own definitive collection of their respective fighting games. Like for NetherRealms, they can hopefully, you know, bring back Mortal Kombat 1, 2, 3, 4, Mortal Kombat Gold, or even War Gods. <laughs> those, those funny games they did back in the day as well. Or, you know, for SNK, they can have like a Fatal Fury collection just for the, you know, for the PlayStation 4 and whatnot. Or Fatal Fury, Art of Fighting, all of them all in one bundle. Even the ADK fighting games they did back in the day, which is like a whole slew of other fighting games and whatnot. So yeah, that's a lot, you know, that, that could be made into collections. So I hope that this happens with SNK and NetherRealms. Mm. But going back to this Capcom fighting collection, do you think this is like a definitive collection that people need to own If you, I mean, as a part of history, I suppose? Well, technically, it is illegal to play ROMs on Fightcade. So if you want to own these games legally, yes, I suggest you <laughs> you buy Capcom Fighting Collection. Yes. I mean, yes, yes. Um, People can still... I do know... We do know that people still play Fightcade online and all that. But if you want to be a bit clean, yeah, I guess Capcom Fighting Collection is the way to go. Especially with the online play, which I'm hearing a lot of good things about. I mean, I had a good session, but, you know... Having other people also saying that it's great is also good news. Yeah, we can talk about the other collection. I did bring up Sonic the Hedgehog, so we also have the Sonic Origins collection that came out this month too, which has four Sonic games from the Mega Drive and Mega CD era that mattered. The 2D titles, you've got Sonic the Hedgehog, Sonic the Hedgehog 2, 
Sonic CD and Sonic the Hedgehog 3 and Knuckles, which is technically two games, but now they're combined to one. As it originally should have been. So you can play either the classic mode of these games or the anniversary mode. The anniversary mode for these games features a 16.9 ratio and the elimination of the life system. So let's just say you die by spikes or from an enemy without if you have no rings. You just basically start back at the last checkpoint. So if you die 99 times, you still start at that same collection. Because if you play the old versions, you use up all three of your lives, you have to start all over again or use a credit. So the new feature is actually kind of useful, especially for those who just are pretty bad at certain areas of the game. But however, to take to replace the life icon, you collect coins now, which you can spend on the bonuses in the museum, or to retry special stages you you got get time out at. This is very useful for Sonic the Hedgehog 1 and Sonic CD, where these bonus stages are really hard to come by, they're few and far between. So using these coins to retry the special stages is very useful. And when you start off any of the single games here in the collection, you get a nice intro and when you finish it, you get an outro that's animated by the same in-house team who did the Sonic Mania animations on Sega's official channels. So that's really good stuff. Just a bit of a disclaimer though, I played the PS4 version only. I've heard some bad things about the PC port that suffered, I guess there, there are some performance issues for old games, believe it or not, and muffled audio for some of the replacement tracks for Sonic 3 like the ones we discussed earlier on. So maybe wait for an update for the PC version. But for the PlayStation 4 version, I played all four games um, to completion. So far, so good. No major bugs so far. Although, there was a bit of a hit collision detection for Sonic CD, but that's very few and far between. But more or less, it's... Uh, yeah, to sum it up, if you're planning to go old school Sonic, this is the collection to go. It's definitely the best present for those rare Sonic fans who still think Sonic Adventures 2 and the other 3D Sonic games are good. So it's like more like a reality check for them. Lah. <laughs> yeah, so so again, is this the definitive edition to get? Considering that I think there was also Sonic Mania that was also... But Sonic Mania collection. is basically like a remix of all the Sonic games uh, from the 2D era, from part 1 to part 3 and some new stages here and there. So that's ah. more of like a remix remake. Uh, Sonic Origins is like a collection. It's ports. These are ports with enhancements in the anniversary edition. I see. So if you're a Sonic fan, it's worth, I guess, getting this one as well? On top it's of the only versions. one to get right now. And I will definitely recommend it. Even though if you look at the museum, if you look at the artwork, it's stuff that has been around in other collections on the GameCube and on the PS2 and on the Xbox. But... For those who have never had those consoles, like the old consoles like the Xbox 360 back in the day, if you're starting gaming right now in the past five years, this is the collection to get. I believe it's out for all consoles like PS4, PS5, Xbox One, Xbox Series, PC, and Nintendo Switch. You can always get into another conversation surrounding, I guess, game preservation and whatnot. But I think sometimes for, I guess, for modern, newer players, I think it's good to sometimes also be available, be able to actually get all these versions, all these collections, right? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, it's really, really hard to find most of these games. You probably have to go to Japan or probably have to travel to unknown parts. I think Amcorp Mall, there's a few guys who actually are selling retro games. But beyond that, not much, really. Um, I guess we can move on to the next title. Um, I played this game called Soldiers, S-O-U-L-D-I-E-R-S. So you basically play any of the three classes, 
Scout, Archer, and Mage as you escape from a fantasy realm you're stuck on. The game itself is a 2D search action title with great controls, arcade-like gameplay, nice pixel art, great music, tough challenges, and even tougher bosses that feel like you're fighting a Souls-like boss, but in 2D. So imagine you're playing a game like Hollow Knight, but the graphics are more 16-bit, and the controls are tighter, and the environments and graphics are much more bright and nicer looking than Hollow Knight. So the kicker here is that your dodge and your evasive options have a cooldown. So you cannot actually spam your dodge button to get out of harm's way. You need to really learn how enemies attack. And then when you step back, either by jumping away or just moving away, and then using your dodge at the right time. Because if you use it at the wrong time, you get killed in a couple of hits. So the challenge factor is really high for soldiers. So I believe the game is out on most consoles. So yeah, the game itself is really good if you're into challenging 2D games. Like... I think there are a couple I actually did mention a while back earlier in the couple of shows, but this one's definitely the one to watch out for, especially if this is the... I think this is uh, Retroforge, uh, Dear Villages. Um, the developer's very first time making a game, and it's very, very impressive. Nice to meet you, now I'm here to be with full force, mess up your facial features. I saw the beast, I'm selling all your little seasons. All y'all stuff your face with is pizza, pizza crack like a hardball egg on Easter, Easter, see his muscles on me. And another one I think that I was sort of like pretty excited about as well uh, is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, Shredder's Revenge. Yes, that is a very good game. Did you play it yet? No, yeah, not yet. But I mean, but it looks very similar to I think the older like I think it was definitely inspired by the, an old version of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game that I've played before. Yeah, yeah, it's inspired by all the Konami beat'em ups that came out at the time from the NES the arcade era. So this 2D side-scrolling beat-em-up title, Shredder's Revenge, lets you have up to six players on screen, defeating foot soldiers and all the aliens from Dimension X, like in the 80s cartoon show, which basically popularized the four-character cartoon mascot cartoons that have been around. You know, it's, it's a genre, you know, right? And yeah, you have Leo, Raph, Mikey, Donatello, April O'Neil, the reporter, and the Master Splinter as fighter characters as well as Casey Jones as a bonus character each of their own advantages and disadvantages and this game of course like I said it's not by Konami it's by publisher.mu and developer Tribute Games whose last game was Panzer Paladin and Steel Rising or Steel Assault one of those games I I forgot what the title was but they create really great action 2D titles so to see this in action when you play it wow it feels really really good the controls are spot on perfect it's really hard to go back to the old games after playing this it looks great. It's also challenging in a way, but not too overwhelming. If you play it on regular difficulty, you'll be fine. And the difficulty scales up if you have more players on board. So you get more enemies flooding the screen, which is pretty awesome. And yeah, I mean, for a beat up it has a pretty long runtime of two and a half hours with 16 stages. And you got some collectibles and you get the fact that you get to level up your characters to get high ninjutsu bar for your characters. That's one thing I need to mention, sorry. So when you're playing the game, you know like how you use your life as a special in the old games? Yeah, this time, your specials are powered by a ninja bar. To charge up your ninja bar to full, you just have to taunt. And taunting will take like a second or two and leaves you vulnerable. But Or you can build it up by attacking enemies. So when you taunt, you get your nin- ninja bar up high, you can use it to either do a crowd control special or a dive kick special or a dodge special. And that's one thing this game has. You have a dodge button. So you can dodge enemy attacks 
and then follow it up with a jump attack counter, which is, you know, something that's sorely needed in a game like this. So at least it's fair, lah, you know, instead of getting wailed by enemies on the cheap in the arcades. So, yeah, I mean, of course, when you play, I think most of the hours you spend in the game after the two and a half hours completing it is dedicated towards getting the achievements, playing with friends, or playing through arcade mode on the harder setting where you have to play through from the start to the end of the game with limited lives and continues. So yeah, if you're a big TMNT fan back in the 80s and 90s, you'll love the nods and throwbacks this title has to offer. If you love arcade games and party-tailored titles, this game is for you too. So yeah, TMNT Shredder's Revenge sets out what it wants to do and delivers a lot of its ends. So I basically give it a 9 crank brains out of 10. You're tuned in to GG Well Played and that was Jonathan Leo, Content Director at Kakuchopere.com summarizing some of the biggest news and releases in June. Head on over to their website Kakuchopere.com to check out more gaming news and reviews. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, look for the podcast on BFM.my, our app available on the Apple App Store or Google Play and you can also find our podcast on Spotify. Do share your thoughts and the games that you play via our email ggwp at bfm.my Don't forget to also follow the station on Twitter at BFM Radio. My name is Anif Baharudin. Thanks for joining Game on and please take care. This has been GG Well Played. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.